mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a trailblazer. Yeah. That's not a blazer you wear. That is actually someone who burns new ground in culture. Yes. And um, I'm also feeling sophisticated because that was a word that I, while I was researching this episode, I, I heard our guest wanted to be when she was growing up. And um, I did too. And funnily enough, when I was growing up uh, in the 80s and 90s, I used to sit when my brother was still alive and watch a TV show called Roseanne. And I knew I was gay from the age of four. And I, I really mean that. Like I knew I was different very, very early on. And and we used to watch this TV show and we were obsessed with it. And today's guest was a key kind of role within that show. And actually, as a kind of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old, gave me so much hope in the UK living in a, in a small town outside of London, where it was very conservative and very kind of, you know, it wasn't the, the done thing to, to be a homosexual. But, but funnily enough, American culture and today's guest made me feel like I was valid and that I could have a place in the world as well as have a passion for showbiz. And our guest has been in showbiz for more than five decades and uh, recently has actually acted alongside none other than Russell Tovey and when he got the role in American Horror Story and he told me the cast the person I was most excited about was today's guest because she is not only funny she is iconic and she looks really incredible in sequins if you google our guest's <laughs> name and sequins you will see that she is a bona fide gay icon we would like <laughs> to welcome to talk up one and only Sandra Bernhardt. Hello. Good morning. Good evening. Hi, Sandy. <laughs> Wherever are you? you and we are in the world, <laughs> we'll come together now in this beautiful communion of love. Thank exactly. you for that great introduction. It was so wonderful. I really appreciate it. We appreciate you. Seriously. Like you, you had such a big impact. Yeah. Love you. <laughs> from the off straight away i love you so sandy it's so nice to see you again i miss you i miss our I times know. well i wish we had had more see i wish we had scenes together i mean like you watch the show um, of season 11 of american horror story we're referring to which is now streaming on hulu it's sort of disparate because there's so many great people and yet we're all sort of like you know, in our own little boxes and not, not everybody gets to actually play together. So that's always a little bit sad and discouraging, but you know, the show was so amazing. I think the season was just great. I mean, I felt like some of it was just kind of flying by the seat of our pants in a certain way, 
because you know it seemed like material kind of came in like oh okay <laughs> the character's going in this direction but i think that's just sort of the kind of the, the the mark of ryan murphy and the way he likes things to be so ultimately it works it's very very compelling very interesting and for me it was just another opportunity to as an actor to get to do something that i haven't always been able to you know have that opportunity yeah absolutely i mean i got told before we started the show that that is how it was going to work you kind of i think they start off and they have the first four episodes and then it's like they're just writing as it goes along and working out what the story is. So you will be flying by the seat of your pants. And the, <laughs> but, the, but it is it is exhilarating. But we had we didn't have any scenes together really, but we did have an amazing time hanging out in Fire Island. And there was one night where we were all like Charlie uh, had cooked us all food. And oh, he was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then Zach was Charlie Carver. That is Zach was playing his guitar banjo, and then you were whistling along one night and we're all just sat around <laughs> playing card games and it felt really like you throw that many actors together in, in the sleeping arrangement it shouldn't really work out but it was kind of perfect and I will remember that forever oh. I know I mean it, it, it was only like I was only there for like two nights but in a place like Fire Island where you did you did feel disconnected from the rest of the world and we were all just sort of there you know and and really, it was. It was like it was like a communal experience, and I think that's what's really missing, in general, from from uh, the planet right now is that ability to just stop and connect with people. I, I read that you, as a kind of personality type, you've called yourself someone that really likes to be spontaneous and have spontaneity, and I guess that makes sense if you think of your history in stand-up comedy. Like, is is that helpful then when you're doing a show like American Horror Story and you get the scripts like very soon to filming and, um, you know, as you go along? I, I guess that's something you might enjoy, like improvisation or... Well, I, I don't like it as much when it's a scripted show because, honestly, you could depend on the writer's and the creators of the show to guide you. And then, I mean, when I'm on stage, anything's possible. Cause it doesn't matter. It's me. It's like, I'm just taking you on my own personal journey. But when you're trying to develop a character and you kind of want to stay within some, within some parameters, I think sometimes, sometimes it's not the best situation. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm Russell. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. Well, I think what I respond to with you is, the improv side of stuff, which I do, I mean, if, if it is a scripted piece, then I guess you do want to rely on the writers and know that it is all there. But I also do like the freedom to improv. That to me is something exciting or play around, like not not completely go off off track, but play around with the text, play around with the scene, play around with the relationships in your co-stars. And when you feel comfortable with your co-star that you could just sort of like throw something out there and then they 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 vault it back to you. That's that's magic. That's when it really kind of sparkles for me. I agree with you completely. And I think there are moments, I think that, you know, to to move a story along, I think there needs to be some sort of a strong, you know, storyline to do that. But that, whatever, I'm just we're just riffing here. I'm like I'm not I'm not going to be teaching an acting you know 101 course. That's, <laughs> that's far 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 be it from me to like get that you know serious about it. So you were born in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, and you were there until you were 10 years old, and then you moved to Arizona, where. Right. But in that that time, you grew up in quite an arty environment because your mum was an abstract painter. Yes, she was. As a matter of fact, it's really kind of a great story. She did a painting in 1969. 
she had a cyst removed from her breast and it was it was called a blue dome cyst. She did a painting that was based on the cyst. And that was my favorite painting of hers. And then towards the end of her life, she gave it to a really good friend of hers. And I was like, mom, I really want that painting. And she goes, no, no, I gave it to Ruth and that's Ruth's painting now. So I've been like sitting on this situation now for, well, since 2014, when my mom passed away, this friend of hers, Ruth, had the painting. And she just passed away about months ago. So I had to reach out to her family and very gingerly maneuver getting the painting back. My brother went to Arizona for something. He shipped it. I just had it cleaned up, new, new like plex, you know, the plexiglass instead of glass. And now my other brother's coming, who's also a, a photographer and very talented. And I'm going to have him hang it this weekend. So it's finally come to what is what is the blue cyst painting like? And what, what and what was it? What age did you realize that your mum was an artist and she was she had a practice? Obviously, she had a studio. Oh yeah, well, no, she she was an artist since she was a kid. Um, you know, she started off you know studying at the Chicago Art Institute before World War II, and then when the war broke out, she had to go home to Jackson, Michigan, to work in her her father's junkyard because they couldn't afford to have her be off going to school anymore but she continued painting and first she was first she painted oil paintings then she did sculpture and then she started doing ink pen so this this is a kind of a combination of of ink pen and i'm trying to i'm I mean, you know what i'll take a picture and send it to you afterwards yeah yeah we can put it on the feed yeah. so people yeah. can see what we're talking yeah. about but you so you knew growing up that your mum was an artist like a lot at what age would you be able to go and sit with her while she worked oh, yeah. from the time i was an infant she was you know when we lived in michigan she would paint down in the basement our basement and then um when we moved out to arizona she worked in like a the garage she made her garage the garage into a um a studio and would she be exhibiting and no, she. Ne- I mean, a little bit, but she didn't really. She had she had lots of very successful, kind of talented friends. Like I actually jotted some names down. There was a artist named Dick Devore. If you if you um, Google him, mm-hmm. he was one of her uh, teachers. And um, then there was this architect friend of hers named Bob Hanamura. He was Japanese, and he helped design the new addition on our house in Michigan. And he designed furniture. He was like like super super like ahead of the curve and then there was this couple joe and anna burgess they did a lot of stuff with textiles and and also incredibly and and joe was also her professor at um flint community college which actually was a very like kind of like renowned little art you know um school back in the 60s and 70s what what was it like yeah what was it like growing up with art like that and having these kind of really cultured figures around you as a child well I think it was a huge influence on me I mean I I just thought that's how life was I thought that people were very diverse and very interesting and engaged and artists you know I was just like I mean so and then I also had relatives that were very into like Broadway musicals and, and, and so I got turned on to that it was a very eclectic childhood my grandparents came from the old country, from Russia. So, you know, I had a, that really close feeling of family and home. But my mom was first generation American. So, I mean, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. And your dad was a doctor. So you had yeah. your mom, your mom's 
really arty and your dad was very had 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 a different thinking brain but they they worked together he actually, he actually like he sort of dabbled he tried to dabble in art and my my brother david who is the photographer said he was actually pretty good at it and so he had, he had that in him he just didn't, of course he didn't pursue it but i think on both sides there is that artistic gene and my father was very um very funny and i mean kind of not easy to be with but funny in his own way so i got some of my humor from him he like he would make up songs and 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 so i kind of got my, my little bit of like poetry and singing from my father in a certain way did you want to go into art and be an artist at any point like a no, visual artist never no. zero talent my daughter though it skipped a generation because my daughter sicily is an excellent artist she wants to be a production and or art designer on film and television, but she does beautiful collages. She paints. She um, she's just like she's very much like my mother. And your mom wanted you to be a dental nurse at one point when you said you wanted to go into the <laughs> into entertainment. Well, she thought as a fallback daytime job to be a dental hygienist would right. be a good thing. But I actually became a manicurist. I was going to say I heard, I heard you did a lot of red nails. Yeah, classic red. Yeah, I love that. Revlon back in the seventies in Beverly Hills, and I'm still like friends with like three of my ladies that I did their nails. So I mean, it's kind of amazing. It's like almost it's like forty five, forty seven years ago. It's a great place to like to 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 characters, I guess, as well, and like see, you know, conversation. I always remember hearing about Beyonce's family. I think they used to hang out a lot in a hair salon or something. And I think all the early Destiny's Child ideas came out of that context. (laughs) That makes sense. Well, and this was really like mid seventies, that you know, sort of like the tail end of Warren Beatty and and shampoo, and so I got to like be a little bit a part of that, you know, folklore of Beverly Hills and Hollywood, (laughs) which was so like glamorous and sexy and fun and just so different than it is now so when you were growing up in say um detroit i have always had this this theory and sorry uh, michigan i mean uh flint michigan sorry detroit detroit is okay i have it's near isn't it but it's close to each other and i have a lot of family in detroit so i spent time in detroit don't worry but (laughs) I, i always had this theory about michigan being this place that um, loads of really fascinating giant characters came out of. If you think of, uh, didn't Iggy Pop come from there? And like Alice Cooper and um, David Bowie even spent time there and kind of, he. I remember reading him saying that it was such a blank landscape in many ways that he was able to think about inventing, you know, a persona or something. And then obviously your um, then friend Madonna and th- th- there's been so many people and even more recently, like I think White Stripes and so many people, but w- w- was there something about Michigan <laughs> for you that, that you think fed into, you know, you becoming the star that you are? Well, it was one piece of the puzzle for sure, because Michigan at that time was also, it was a very like, you know, flourishing with, you know, the automobile industry and people had, you know, a certain amount of liquidity, liquidity, you know, money to spend. And, and, and people, I mean, the middle classes were flourishing back then. And I think that makes such a big difference that when everybody at every strata of society can live a a relatively comfortable life, it's, it makes for more, you know, of a, you know, more of a, a, a collective. I think that, and that now it's harder and harder for people to to be able to just get by. But mm. back then, you could be a factory worker, 
and still be able to like, you know, have a, a nice house and, you know, educate your kids. And I think that's just, it's sad that that's, that's, it's so such a struggle now for people and that's missing. I mean, I think that's universal. I think it's across the board. Um, so in that way, I felt that everybody was much more, there was much more equality growing up than there is now. How did stand-up come into your life? And, and what I really love about your stand-up and what, how you've described it is that you see it more as a performance art and your shows are orientated around a performance art level of stand-up. That's something that I've just been totally fascinated with, with you. How did that come into your life? Well, I was always funny and I was, I was always um, like a commentator, you know, like in school. When we moved out to Arizona in high school, I mean, I would always kind of get up in class and comment on what was happening in the world or politically, but I could also make people laugh by doing that. So it became sort of second nature for me. And also just like growing up with the influences of people like Carol Channing and Carol Burnett and Mary Tyler Moore and all the kind of early, you know, comedic actress types. Um, and, you know, late night television was like, you know, The Tonight Show and Dick Cabot. You know, all the people that, that were so, like, urbane and smart and funny and, you know, that just be, being able to be nuanced was just second nature. And, again, it, it amazes me that, especially in our country, that was just the norm. And now everybody just seems to be, like, so fractured and people have lost their their interests in things that are challenging. And mm. back then it was just nature to watch entertainment that brought people together. And it was the unifier, not the divider. What was the reaction like to your stand-up when, when you first started, when you, when you were going down a more performance art route with it? And would you see your stand-up as art, as performance art not rather than... Not really, because it's not... I don't think it's like so inaccessible. I think it's actually very accessible, but you still have to have some references to things that are very eclectic. I mean, whether it's fashion or music or pop culture. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I expect my audience to bring something to the table um, where they're responsible for disseminating what I'm talking about so I don't have to break it down for them. I mean, I've always been of the, the mind that if people come to see me, then you just have to like, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then go later, go read about it or figure it out. Because, you know, an artist is a performer. You want to bring people up, expose them to things that they wouldn't necessarily get to experience. And I think that's why I've had longevity and why people come to me, you know, for, for that sort of insight. I think your mantra is always something that I've really responded to like, and Rob talks about at the beginning about staying curious, but staying engaged, remaining open and remaining surprised. Yeah. And that, that is, that is such an incredible place to make work from. What is it? What does that feel like? What that ability to make work from that place? Well, it's very immediate. You know, I just got back late last night, which is why I seem a little bit hazy. I, I did three nights down in Texas um, it was all anchored around this LGBTQ organization called Fiesta Youth, which um, a lot of um, Latina kids and their families, it's a, it's a support group for, you know, people, you know, to like feel okay about their sexuality. So that, that was how the whole gig came together. Then I did Dallas and I did Austin, Texas. We were driving all over Texas, which was like, I hadn't been there in years. 
And it was just so interesting to see how that part of America, just a, a little snapshot because, you know, I wasn't there for very long, but just like the whole idea, like this is America, this is Texas. I mean, they have these giant flags flying, American flags and the Texan, Texas flag. And then all these um, huge billboards, you know, anti-abortion billboards and, you know, and, and religious Jesus billboards. And I was just like, this is so fucked up. And then they had all these billboards for personal injury lawyers. I thought, well, have your babies. And then they can become personal injury lawyers when, you know, when they get into an accident on the highway. I mean, it's like just the whole, the way people think it's like, I'm going to have my babies and I'm going to raise my babies. And then what, then what's going to happen to the babies? You know what I mean? There's like no forethought. There's no, no, there's nothing out there that they, they can't take in the whole vista of what life is about. So I think that's where I enter the picture. It's sort of like, but let's stop and look at this whole thing. And like, mm. where are we going with this whole idea? And yeah. is, is it what you really want? I mean, do you really want to have kids? Do you want to have four kids? Do you have one kid? Do you realize what the ramifications of having a kid are? Because even though I'm like relatively smart, I didn't know what they were until I had one. And then she's 24 now. And it never ends. It's sort of like, you, and you never have any idea how your kid is going to turn out. So this whole notion that people are supposed to have children and it's all supposed to be like this picture book, it's just total absurdity. Mm. You know, Sandra, one of the things I've really respected about you is how you've always kind of used your stand-up comedy, your work, even your choice in the roles you've played to actually say something in the world to have a political position and be very resolute and strong with that and I know one of your main focuses has been abortion rights LGBT rights like all of these very key issues which um, just keep seem to be challenged like constantly it's like a circle that just keeps going Cyclical. round and round and round yeah. but I love that you have been able to use your talent and it wasn't just about you being you know narcissistic or wanting to be famous or anything like that you had a talent and then you wanted to create um or, or you know through, through that platform you're able to actually say something and and for me I feel like that's been lost in in recent years you know like very few people um are actually saying you know really what 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 they believe or what they stand for or and it, you, you do see obviously activists doing that in more of a public way now but when you think of celebrities and like superstars you know the era that you came up through I feel like so many of your colleagues at the time were doing the same thing like you weren't just in it to be famous you were trying to like maybe make the world a better place possibly well i mean i think part of being especially being a, a, a solo performer i think you have some responsibility to you know infuse your work with what's moving culture and society along i mean it was never it was never interesting to me just to tell jokes and get a reaction in terms of like oh you know laughing i mean it's like laughter is great but if it doesn't have some resonance to it, if it doesn't leave you with some something to really like cogitate about, what what good is it? I mean, I, I like all great singers. I mean, you know, you look at Joni Mitchell. You you know, you look at Patti Smith. You know, the list is mm -hmm. ten miles long. These are people that you know not only are incredible singers, but they're singing songs about something that that stay stay with you for you know decades. Mm -hmm. And they're always relevant, you know, because culture only changes so much. And 
you know, the age of Aquarius, which was promised to me when I was 13, has yet to be fully or even partially realized. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wait, I'm still waiting, you know, and I love listening to uh, Aquarius. I let the sun shine in because it reminds me of that time when I was growing up and I loved the music and I love the whole hippie ethos. But if, I think if you track down people that were hippies in the late 60s, I'd be fascinated to know what they thought then and what they think now. And I feel like I'm one of those people, though, I'm not, I would not, hardly call myself a hippie because I like nice things and I want to like be surrounded by nice things. But I, in my heart, the things we talked about or I heard from people that were older than me at that time still resonate to me. And I'm, I'm still waiting for that big promise to come, you know, come to fruition. The time you did come up in the the seventies uh, and eighties, you it was like an incredible moment in cultural history and in, and in pop culture, and you were like embedded in the cultural underground of that time. And you know, doing this research and looking back from images, there's images of you and like Keith Hare hanging out, who's like an ultimate hero, and you were there. And then, and this amazing moment of like comedy and art crossing over which, you know, it does cyclically happen, but it is very rare. And that felt like then was just, what was, did you feel like you were at the epicenter of something really incredibly, like a movement and and something historical at that time? Well, it, it shifted because when I started performing in um, 1975 and became very good friends with um, my mentor, Paul Mooney, who was mm. one of the, you know, kind of like, I premiere writers for like people like Richard Pryor and and uh, and uh, just many many black comedians. He was the most brilliant black comic working at that time. So I was sort of like, I I was you know I had like this boot camp of what comedy was when it was at its purest form, you know culturally and and sociologically. So I was exposed to all that. He took me to black clubs. You know we went to see you know all kinds of other, you know, black singers. So to me, to have that as my sort of like bedrock, the black culture to me is the most important culture in our society, um, musically, comedically, um, artistically. And I feel like a lot of white people are frauds to me and I don't feel like they really understand or have the, the, the full scope of what it's like to, you know, really put everything on the line for your work and as a black artist you may not do it consciously but you just do it because you don't that's just how it is so I that was that became infused in me as as a a performer and there's also a sense of sophistication when it comes to black performers that you don't see in white performers there's just I mean you look at Diana Ross just an elegance and just a natural sort of grace that white people don't have and so i always like aspired to that and that's why i feel like it separated me from everybody else what did the art scene feel like at that time for you and what did it feel like there was constant exhibitions and you were hanging out like on second avenue with there was a whole art movement down there yeah that was later that was that was like back that was into the 80s at that point because um my collaborator in the mid eighties was this um, Cal arts graduate named John Boscovich. Mm. And he studied under John Baldessari. Um, and so I knew John and, and, and then 
when John Boscovich came into my life, he started kind of turning me on to all the artists. And I mean, mm-hmm. I wrote I would list because I, I can't never remember people's names. So, you know, um, Cindy Sherman and, and Francesco Clemente and, um, you know, I got to know Mary Boone and, you know, her whole kind of scene. Um, and David Sally and his his girlfriend at the time, Carol Armitage, who was a choreographer. Um, so um, Julian Schnabel, you know, these I, I mean, these are just to name a few people. But I mean, I, I knew Keith Haring peripherally just because of Madonna, but I didn't I didn't really spend too much time. But yeah, we were always going to art shows and it was just like everything just coalesced. I mean, everything was happening at that time. It was the downtown scene. So it was the music and the, the the nightlife and the art and the dancing and the performance. And I was sort of like one of the kind of people at the you know eye of the storm at that time. Mm. And so that was very exciting for me. And everybody came to my shows. And then I had entree um, into everybody else's world. So only thing I regret is that, that I didn't buy more art at that time. That was stupid. I wish I had a Cindy Sherman. I wish, I mean, I was like, I could have <laughs> bought stuff back then. I'm, I'm not saying it would have been cheap, but it, I, it would have like appreciated a lot. And I didn't, I just didn't do it. And I, I, nobody was advising me in the right way. So I'm mad about that. But why do you think you didn't do it? Why do you think you wasn't? I don't that? know. I just didn't, I wasn't, my head's never been into like, I don't do things for investing, you know, that's just mm. not. <laughs> I do think I'll buy something because I like it. But also, I, I really wasn't making that money then. So maybe I was just like, I, I don't know. I don't, I, maybe I was just being frugal or something. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I do wish that I had a few more pieces. of. I, of I also some, sometimes think that when you're a creative person yourself, you wouldn't like think necessarily to buy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you think, like, but why, aren't people, why aren't people just giving it to me? Some, <laughs> it's, it's, you know what? Some people did. Like, I'm looking at this really cool little piece by, you know, you know the... Um, conceptual artist Mike Kelly. Of course. He did this really amazing, um, he was doing a whole series of like high school drawings, like kids. Mm. And so it's this picture of Abraham Lincoln and it's done on a piece of school paper. And and then there's a little swastika in the middle of Abe Lincoln's head, like something a kid would do while they were sitting in class. So he gave me that. So that's nice that I have that. I have a few things people have given me. Well, so you knew Mike Kelly? Yeah. Oh my god! Because you know he's one of my favorite ever, ever artists. Yeah. And the show they had at um, MoMA PS One, like I don't know when it was, like four years ago or something. I literally spent a whole day there because I'd never seen it all in real life, and it did was so have, incredible. Did, they have all of his um, stuffed animals. And yes, that yeah, they, oh they, had, they had like it was like a whole retrospective. So it had rooms full of all the the original work. You know, it was just totally extraordinary. But to uh, me, that that was that was one of my favorite things anybody ever did was like all those dirty stuffed animals. I yeah. thought, it said so much, and it was just like, yeah. So I knew him um, through John Boscovich, and I went to his studio out in LA, and he gave me that he gave me that little drawing. Let's talk about John Boscovich, though. You actually worked together on, on your one-woman show. He was helping you with the performance side of it, but he himself was a filmmaker, artist, and a writer. He wasn't any of that until he met me. He was an artist, a graduate of CalArts, and he was, actually, he got his law degree. And then I met him. He was really, like, naturally funny and, like, sarcastic and a little bit mean. Super, super mean. <laughs> Which, I mean, I don't, I don't consider myself mean. I am, like cutting edge but so he infused a lot of my work with his I mean he took him to the edge in a way that maybe I never would have 
But we had a great time collaborating on Without You, I'm Nothing. And then we did a second, a, a, a follow-up show called Giving Till It Hurts, which never got filmed, which was maybe even more brilliant than Without You, I'm Nothing. Sadly, that just didn't have, I don't know what happened. It didn't. But, and then he put, he put the show together with me and my other collaborator, my musical director, Mitch Kaplan, who I still work with to this day. We sat in Mitch's apartment and we wrote Without You, I'm Nothing and came up with all the ideas and the songs. And um, and then John sort of he directed it and then we did it off Broadway for six months. And then we turned it into an actual film and it was like, you know, it was a big deal. And now it's in the Criterion Collection, um, wow. which is like, to me, like, you know, of course, a huge honor. And sadly, John died about, it's been about 10 years ago now he got very fucked up, um, went off the rails, got caught up with some bad people, got druggy, which was so w weird for him because he was so like, he smoked pot, but he was just not a druggy kind of person. But he just fell off the rails and he did such great conceptual work. And I have I have some of his pieces. Do you have um, one of the electric, the electric Fan, which is his kind of iconic work titled Feel It Motherfuckers, Only Unclaimed Item from Stephen Erebin. No estate 1997 now this is incredibly conceptual but also very personal work for him do you know about that piece i might not know about it but steven arabina was also my stylist and he was a brilliant stylist he did he did without you i'm nothing he did a lot of my other performances and photo shoots and then he died he died before john of aids um so there was a lot of no i don't i mean i i kind of like backed away from John at a certain point because it got too dark right. and so sadly we weren't close anymore um like the last 10 years of his life really right. but th th this work I think is an iconic piece because it's my projection onto it is that you know Stephen died of AIDS and he had an estate and the family went in and people went in and picked over it and the thing that was left was this electric fan and that was all that John was able to claim from his lover's partner's estate. And then he made it into this piece, Electric Fan, which is in this kind of plexi box. It's an, mm -hmm. it's an incredible work. For me, I hadn't really known about it until I was looking at your work. And then it makes me think of Felix Gonzalez Torres. It has this mm -hmm. absolute kind of energy of that. And I feel like it's something that is now new to me and, and absolutely fantastically innovative and important and needs to be focused more. Well, John was a brilliant conceptual artist. I mean, I have a problem with conceptual art because the, the artists don't produce the art. You know, they farm it out to people. It's it's all ideas. But in terms of that way of thinking, it works for a live performance because it is all, it is only ideas. Mm -hmm. And then I translated it. So it was sort of interesting, you know. Um, I took a lot of his ideas and then I added my my performance styling and my personality to his ideas so the conceptual element i felt was put to better use in this way than i mean i'm i'm being very judgmental but i just think that i'm because my mom was an artist and painter i like people who do things with their hands mm. that's fair enough I, I really love the full title of that um one woman show as well as without you i'm nothing with you i'm not much better which it really um i don't know it got me. Really it's, it's, it's yeah. funny but it's also yeah. so true i'm sorry it's like 
<laughs> oh my god i loved that well it is, it is all true i mean that was that was the irony it was sort of like without you i'm nothing it was sort of a throwback to like something you know a movie star would sign on a on a picture <laughs> in, the, in the 1930s or 40s because how, how sincere were they by saying that you know and that's where the, that title came from like yes without you i'm nothing darling hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Do you keep up to date with exhibitions uh, now? Do you go and see a lot of shows and follow artists and have artist friends now like you had, you know, when you were first coming to New York? I really don't. To be perfectly honest with you, I mean, I um, I live right in the, the thick of it. I live in Chelsea, right, and up and down my street, there's art galleries. But I, I never go anymore. I guess it's just sort of I, when it's too close to you, you just don't do it. But one of these days, I'll I'll start going around to the. I, I think I think the past couple of years too, with the pandemic, mm. you sort of, I sort of just got out of the habit of dropping into places. So I need to get back into that again. Do you, do you have any memories of like going to museums when you were growing up in um, Flint or, or you know, Arizona. just throughout, throughout your career or are there any well, memorable kind of experiences you've had? Yeah, I mean, and certainly in Flint because of my mom's association, there was always art around. My mother had a, a lot of art and we'd go to the Flint Community College where they had art shows and the, her friends would have their, their art up. And then when we moved to Arizona, got very into like the whole, you know, um, American Indian art scene. There's a, a really great. I'm going to forget the name of the um, the art museum there. It's the Indian, the Herd Museum. Oh, the Herd Museum. And it was always. I loved going there because, of course, you could see not only paintings but like I liked artifacts. You know, I liked the, I liked the little bowls that they would make, or you know, they weave little baskets, and it's quite beautiful. Yeah, and I I would I would buy my mom like you know. Like for Mother's Day or her birthday, I'd buy her like a little Indian bowl or an artifact. And I have a few of them still. And I bought some. Wait, who was that back there? That was Steve and Archie. Sorry, there's so much. The dogs, the dogs are going crazy in the apartment at the minute. Well, running up I, and down I, and we've look, got a wooden floor. Look, there's George. Oh, <laughs> yeah, hello. But Joy feels very relaxed. I've got Archie and Cooper are literally just like <laughs> running up and down, like tap dancing on the wooden floor at the moment while we're trying to do this interview. George love, loves it when I'm home because then he can just like cuddle up next to me. Absolutely. Well, as well as being a collector and having pieces of art yourself and like handed down, You've also been a muse. You've also appeared in in fashion shows. Uh, you have been a model. Uh, you were in the catwalk for Chanel in 1993. Hello. Uh, you were in 1992, Comme des Garçons show. Your 
you've you seem to be very friendly with Mark Jacobs. You were in the whole campaign with him in 2016. What has fashion been like for you and, and being that muse? Well, fashion to me has been the most exciting element of my career outside of my performing because growing up, the only other thing I thought maybe I would do was like get into fashion. I, I would never have been a designer, but I just like, I just like being around it. I like being like part of that world. I mean, it's so exciting. And, you know, befriending Isaac Mizrahi back in the 80s and, and Andre Leantali, who was one of my, my very oh, wow. best friends until the oh, minute. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We talked every day during the pandemic. So when he when he died, it was like a total like even though I knew he was in the hospital, I, I had tried to reach him for the three days leading up to his passing, and it was weird for him not to call me back. And then our friend, some mutual friend, called and said he had died, and I just like oh. lost it. I mean, I don't I can't remember anybody else dying that had such a huge impact on me. It's it's been a year now. And I still have all of his messages on my phone machine here at home. And I haven't been able to listen to him because mm. he, was, he, is, he is just such a, he's like, he's just like the most brilliant person in the world. The most difficult, the most impossible, impetuous, spoiled, fabulous, um, loving, giving. I mean, he was everything, everything under the sun. And he did so much for me in my career. I mean, I went to Paris with him. He orchestrated the whole Chanel thing for me. Andre Leontali was the one of the creative directors at Vogue magazine. But before that, he worked at interview when he was very young. He was somebody that people just came to for for his wisdom and historical insight. I mean, he knew about like the the French couture. He was like he was he was fluent in French. Um, he grew up in North Carolina. He was, you know, part of the whole Jim Crow South and worked his way out of it and came to New York. And he just a very, very iconic, brilliant person uh, and so naturally funny. I, I just never nobody ever made me laugh more than Andre. He was insane. But he wasn't trying to make me laugh. He was just like so audacious and so just just like a, a wordsmith in a way I've never seen anybody be in my life. And I miss him terribly, terribly, terribly. But so the fashion came through that friendship, but also, you know, it just seemed to happen along the way for you. Well, it was it was before that too. I mean, you know, a lot of it came through Isaac Mizrahi because he started dressing me in the eighties. So whenever I went on the the David Letterman show, I'd wear an outfit from him, and that became a very big thing because nobody was doing stuff like that back then. I mean, yes, Diana Ross. Every, there were you know there were people that were very stylish. But nobody was like talking about fashion and like I would come on the show and, you know, you know, coiffure uh, and maquillage and jolie led and, you know, all this insane. You know, and David Letterman, like from Indiana, which is look at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so it was like the insanity of being this like fakey, fabulous icon of fashion and and then juxtaposed against this like all-American guy. It became like this really funny performance, performative, you know, relationship. Um, and then it just sort of it was jumping off place from there. I, you know, I I wrote I wrote some articles for Vanity Fair. I mean, I, I, everything just sort of like, you know, kind of mixed into each other for uh, but jumping off the fashion scene. You went. You were on David Letterman about twenty-eight times, right? Thir to be exact, thirty. <laughs> thirty times you've appeared. 
Yeah. And every time you'd be wearing a different outfit mm-hmm. and talking about amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, not, I didn't only talk about fashion. I mean, I was talking about all sorts of things that were very contemporary and, and things that he didn't know anything about, but that's what made it so much fun. And now everybody's like, everybody goes to fashion shows. Everybody knows about that. And it's like, like back then it was special again, you know, it was like this sort of like influencers. It's like, no, I actually knew people when they were at the height of their talent and I respected them and I wasn't the person doing it. I was just wearing the clothes and reflecting what it all meant, you know? And that also like I became, forged a big relationship with the photographer, um, Michelle Compt, who shot me for Vanity Fair and for Playboy and for Italian Vogue. So he played another big part of the whole piece of, you know, my fashion glamour merging with all the other things. It's like weird Americana meets like, you know, super glamour. Mm. Can we talk about Playboy then? How, what, yeah. What, so the first thing that comes to mind when you too. think of that is just <laughs> nudity. Was you was you naked for this shoot? I was naked, yeah. I mean, but fabulous shots, you know, like I got painted gold. I, you know, I was, it was the backdrop for him saying, uh, Michelle Comp is another brilliant person. And I wrote the entire accompanying, you know, piece, piece about, you know, being a feminist, but new, you know, the, the, the idea of being naked and the idea of being a feminist, it was all like, and nobody had ever, obviously, a Playboy Bunny doesn't usually write her, you know, article. Was it never wracking knowing you were going to be doing that? When that was coming out onto the shelves? No. 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 no, not at all. I was very comfortable with myself. I mean, I was at the peak of looking great and, you know, in, in incredible shape. And I was, how old was I when I did it? Like 37. Um, and... I just loved it. I loved the freedom of it. I loved the um, just the celebration of being somebody who wasn't the girl next door and not the typical beauty, and yet being beautiful in that way that is sort of timeless and, and unique. So it was a celebration of that. For me, coming out of feeling insecure as, as a young woman, coming into my full you know celebration of myself, being an example for people that and women that don't look like everybody else. Mm. Have you felt the impact of these roles you've played with people? Like, like obviously you've impacted myself and you've impacted Rob, but you're talking about uh, Marsha in the King of, King of Comedy, Nancy and Roseanne, which we was talking about in the intro, uh, the nurse Judy in Pose, which for you, you've said is kind of like a full circle, very familiar role. Fran now yeah. in American Horror Story. Have you felt? You're so good in Pose, by the way. I oh, mean, next level. Thank you. I, I I saw Pose a lot after the fact. It was already when the second season was out, and for some reason I'd missed it. And when I turned it on and I saw your performance in particular, and Billy Porter, who was previously on Talk Art as well, I cried. You know, there there are certain moments. Some of those scenes are just devastating. That must have been really hard for you in a way to like relive what you actually probably experienced, you know, firsthand in the '80s with friends dying or. Well, it was actually very rewarding because it was being able to take that, you know, emotion and that pent up, you know, sadness and putting it into something that, you know, helped people up and educate them and show them what life was like for, for these men. And of course, for the trans people, I know people who I would never expect to respond to this 
you know, show and go, it was the best thing I've ever seen. I had no idea. And it just opened people up. It cracked them open. And so to be able to take that experience and do something so positive with it uh, and also create a character that was not like me, I, I was, it was really a great experience. And you must have had a lot of people come up to you over the years saying how much you've helped them or inspired them or pushed their art in some ways. I know there's so many comedians, comedians who reference you as someone that they look at for, you know, uh, inspiration. Well, I just like to, I like to think that I'm the person who has helped open people up to really being completely who they are. And that was yes. That was- it's one of the most important things I learned from working with Paul Mooney. It was always like, you know, you have to like strip away layers of yourself every time you get on stage, like, like peel away yourself like an onion. That's what he would always say. And get closer and closer to your essence. And, you know, if you're going to have longevity in this business and you're, if you're going to make an impact, you've got to be authentic and you can't just, you know, emulate somebody else and, and, and kind of just skate on the surface. You've got to go mm-hmm. deep and, and you also have to be strong and you have to feel like you can't just like fall apart every time something goes wrong in your life. If you want to make an impact and you want to change the way people look at the world, you, it's your responsibility to be strong and in a certain way, be a warrior because weakness is, you know, it's just, it's just an easy way out. And I'm sorry to say it and be judgmental, but I, I'm, I'm not always like happy about when people show their too, too much weakness. Vulnerability is one thing, but weakness yeah. is another, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I use the word trailblazer for you because if you think back to when you were, you know, at the comedy store in West Hollywood, there weren't that many female comedians at the time, were there? Like doing what you were yeah. doing. And it was such a male-dominated, misogynistic kind of era to be coming up through. Yeah. But I, I was really interested. Can you speak a bit about in 1978 in the belly room? Because I love this. I'd, I'd never heard that part of your story until researching mm-hmm. this episode. And I was like, what? It's so cool. Yeah, well, it was It was a room at the comedy store for just women to perform. And my other mentor and really good friend, Lotus Weinstock, who was like also brilliant, Lenny Bruce's last girlfriend. But that's only one tiny you know, element to who she was. She also sadly passed away many years ago. She was just like this free spirit. And we, so today, together we would host the evenings and, and like she played piano, we'd improvise songs. We would do all kinds of like just insane, you know, bits and pieces. And it was just a room where nobody, nobody came to judge you. You know, you just like, you could get up and become a complete version of yourself. So even though I hated the idea of being sort of relegated to, you know, a little room upstairs, I made it, I made the best of it. And it's really where I got a lot of my confidence um, performing. Yeah, and I heard sometimes there was even no audience, but it didn't matter because it was like you just <laughs> did the performances anyway. I, I, it's crazy. Well, the, I mean, it was such a small room. I think the most it held was like 25 or 30 people. Right. But there, there's a luxury in that, you know, yeah. you can just like do whatever you want. And then suddenly you can take that and go on to the next level with it. You mentioned that you hung out with Keith Haring slightly. What What was he like and and did you meet the icons of Andy Warhol and Robert Maplethorpe or Basquiat these artists of the time I I don't think I ever met Basquiat but Maplethorpe shot me for doing his last book of collections of women and he was very very ill at that point he was 
I would see him all, I'd see him around town a lot here in New York and he, he was like very frail, but he, he would always go, I want to shoot you, I want to shoot you. And so we finally made it happen. And it's a beautiful, iconic photo. As a matter of fact, I'm, the opposite page is Barbara Gladstone, speaking of the art world. Um, and I went up to his studio on 23rd Street and I remember going into his bedroom and he had all this iconography, you know, crosses and rosary beads and and all of his AIDS medication. It was just like very dark and very intense. Mm. And he came out like in his like silk robe and his monogram slippers. And he shot the picture of me. And I think that was the last time I ever saw him. I think he he died shortly after that. Um, Keith Haring actually came to my house in LA in the Valley. Madonna brought him over for dinner. He's kind of, he was kind of a goofy dude. You know, he was not like, he wasn't all that serious, but he was a, a combination. I think I remember being kind of goofy and shy, mm. um, but there were a lot, not a lot of people. There were like maybe eight of us. So I can't say we had any major conversation, but it was cool that he was in my house, you know, and having yeah. dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Russ sent me an amazing photograph of you taken by her Brits earlier today, which I'd never seen. And it's of your mouth. And yeah. um, it's such an extraordinary photograph because it captures who you are without, without really even seeing the, you know, your full face. I know or, exactly yeah. who it yeah, is. Yeah, it's so, yeah. and it's so much about your instrument in the sense of your voice you know, the comedy, the spoken word, like, I don't know, it's a really, and your teeth as well. It's like, it's so, it's so you, it's I love it. close up. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, well, was, what was that like, shooting that? Well, it was a whole, it was a whole day of taking pictures. And, and then, I don't know, he just took a picture of my mouth, but you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember like what, there wasn't like a specific point to it other than that was just one, that might, dude, he just came in close and took the yeah, picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was he like though to work with? very he's very sweet um a little kind of a little you know he's a little snotty um nice <laughs> man but a little snobby but interesting in that way and obviously a very talented photographer and fun to work with and all the photographers back then were just like you know, Matthew Ralston and Greg Gorman and yes all those guys were like again it was like a special time you know people really like worked hard at their craft and they were unique. There was the, that was the LA scene. And then there was the New York scene and the London scene. I mean, everywhere you went, there was something that was happening in that, in that city. Did they feel connected in some way, like the London, the New York, the LA scene, I guess New York and LA might have felt a bit more connected, but, or did they feel like their own separate entities? That's what I mean. Yeah, they did. I mean, LA was very specific because to me, it had this sort of, you know, um, surfer, you know, sun-kissed kind of vibe. And, of course, New York was Robert Maplethorpe and the whole art scene, grittier, you know, Peter Beard, who I knew a little bit, you mm. know. I mean, it's just, it, you know, the city identified people more then than it does now. You know, I think there's more, there's less of that uniqueness to, to the place and people kind of go everywhere and 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 there's not like i it's necessarily a scene i maybe i might be wrong about that there might be but just you know the world has changed everything because of social media and the internet you can access anything so it's not it's not like you go to a place and like 
you wouldn't have known about it already. So, mm. do you think that a scene could come back like that? That 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 time could be cyclical and no way, no, because everybody thinks they know everything. Everybody's an expert. Everybody weighs in. The influencers. It's like they get invited to these fashion shows and shit. And it's like they're 19, 20 years old. They're just like people that have had like lots of plastic surgery. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're not educated and they have no soul. And they just have big mouths and they go on TikTok. I don't know. I mean, we, you, I mean this, this isn't even worthy of having a conversation about the three of us here are unique people. I mean, we're also older. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously much older than you guys, but we're steeped in something different and something different calls to us. Mm. This is not like we're not running every minute to like be talked about or seen and, you know, and, and interacting with people we don't know. I mean, we know each other. I didn't know you, but, but we know each other in a more visceral sense. Mm. Yeah. And you looked up what I talked about, you know, my work. And it's not like you've seen me like on inter the internet somewhere and you're like, oh, she's hot. She's fabulous. I want to know her. <laughs> this sort of mindless babble that goes on. Yeah. But what can we do? Because it makes me kind of sad, this conversation then. But what can we do as artists or what can artists of a generation do? I think do we're already to... doing it, Russ. I mean, talk art no, in itself know, yeah. as a platform highlights voices of highly intelligent, diverse people from all over the world. Like, that's the whole point. Getting I, intelligent I, conversations recorded is really important. I think the most important thing is that we have, I'm, I'm, you obviously have your community in London. Um, I have the community of people I know around the world. I mean... I can't wait to get back to London. I mean, I miss my yes, friends over there. Yeah, believe me, I'm working on it. I need a good, <laughs> I need a good promoter, and I need a venue. If you guys, oh my god, it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start calling around. We, we need, we need you on this. Oh, big okay. time, big right, time. So, so you'll be in touch about that. Yes. Um, because everything shifts all the time, and when you come back to a market, it's like, it's not. I mean, the last time I was there, I was at Ronnie Scott's. I don't know, I don't know if that's the right place to come back to, but I'll, I'll throw that ball into your court. Okay. And then we'll discuss it. You know, it's really interesting because I also remember connecting to you in, in the UK through In Bed With Madonna, which was called Truth or Dare in America. And if you think of that film, which was a kind of post-Warhol-like document, it was a kind of first reality TV in a way. What was it like being exposed on that level? Because that was in cinemas. It was like seen by millions of people all over the world. Was that something that you 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 found difficult? to like be part of, you know what I mean? Like the, the no, no, it was nothing it was... difficult about it. I mean, the whole thing was sort of like staged. Obviously. Was it really? Yeah. Because I always felt like it was meant to be just like the camera just follows her around, but it, it wasn't, it was totally. Uh, I mean, I'm, not saying, almost. I'm not saying totally, but yeah, you, you have to, I mean, you have to create moments like that. There's, right. uh, it's very unusual to like be, have a flow to something. You got to create like, an arc to whatever it is yeah 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 so like they brought me in to talk about specific things you know at the hotel up in toronto and you know i'm just you know we we're friends but i'm also very good at like getting what what was going on so right. that's, so we sort of just like kind of rolled with it because they wanted like a friend of hers to be outrageous you know and so <laughs> i fit that bill um so nothing happened in that little scene that you know surprised me right 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 but there must have been a crazy time though, with the, yeah the attention the crazy you must time get so much out. attention when you're with the world's biggest star you know what i mean like she well, but again even even then 
if you look up pictures of me and Madonna, there's very few pictures of us. Mm. And had that been now, there would just be like endless, 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 endless pictures. On, but even though there were paparazzi around and people following us, there really weren't that many pictures. Today. And we went out quite a bit. We went to clubs. We went to events. Why do you think that is then? Because because there wasn't nobody had a phone. Nobody was taking pictures mm-hmm. except actual photographers. And they weren't they weren't always there. Yeah, so you were able to have privacy then in that sense. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it we didn't really it. feel overwhelming at all in many ways. No. What no. what was the most kind of like outrageous art memory you have sharing of that with that friendship that the experience is like, you know, she brought Keith Herring to her house and stuff. What what were the kind of most outrageous, incredulous moments you had? <laughs> um I don't I just think when we would go out dancing or you know, I met up with her um, in Paris when I was shooting this film, um, uh, Hudson Hawk, and I was over in Europe. It was just sort of the spontaneity of it, you know, and and people just sort of like being up in people's faces and being kind of like bratty and stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, we just had we just we had a really fun time. It was it was nothing really like specific you know hanging out with warren Beatty, who i i knew him before i knew her um and you know just being like around every kind of imaginable person from just like the people cool people the street people to like all the famous people who were like kind of intimidated by the two of us together because we were sort of you know (laughs) like i said bratty and it was fun Right, it's amazing, amazing time, and and to have been to have just experience like all of that, and that time in New York that is just embedded in art history and pop culture. Yeah. I love that picture of you both on stage as well when you were wearing your kind of like sequin bras and denim. Yeah, and... don't bungle the jungle. Yes, don't bungle the jungle about the rainforest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. That was so fun. That was such a great night. That yeah. was in 1989, and that was with Keith Haring. There's a picture of you, Madonna, and Keith Haring. So, what was that night like? And was it was it a, like a fundraiser for the rainforest? Yeah, exactly. And I think everybody under the sun was there. I couldn't tell you anymore what the fuck happened. I don't know. <laughs> Other than going on stage with her, and she didn't. Want, she wanted me to be shorter, so she wore um, a big stacked heel and made me go barefoot. And and people who know me know that I won't go barefoot in my own home. I have an aversion to being barefoot. So to, for me to walk barefoot on a stage over electrical wires was like not something I would ever do, but she made me do it. Wow. So she could be taller. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh well, before we get onto our final questions, I just want to, you know, throw some other names at you, the icons that you may have come across and if you had them experiences, because, you know, just the fact that we discovered now you knew Mike Kelly is amazing for us. But like, did you ever meet Peter Hujar and David Wojnarowicz? No. Never met them. Uh, did you Did you meet John Sex? Did you ever see him perform? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Did you this talk, is did, like Russell's projected like you art life. You never yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just imagine like the dinner table. Warhol. So Warhol, you must have come across at that time. He, he actually came to uh, a performance of mine in around <laughs> 1983. Really? Dar- Darlene Love opened for me, which is insane. Um, and Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner were there. I'm very close with. And 
I think you can find that little blurb in the Andy Warhol diaries of, of him being oh, wow. uh, being there that night. Is it complimentary? Is it nice? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, totally. Did you ever meet Nan Golding or know Nan Golding? Yeah, I know Nan Golding. She shot a picture of me when I was uh, pregnant. <gasps> but no. I'm, still, I'm still waiting to get it from her. She never gave oh, it. Oh, you need that. <laughs> Have you I seen know. it? Have you seen the image? Has she printed uh -huh. it? Yeah. So well, I mean, that, your your daughter needs that as well. That's like a yeah, beautiful yeah, thing. Yeah, to... yeah. I know. I'm sure she. Aww. I'm sure if I reached out to her, she'd give it to me. Yeah, she'll hear this hopefully. <laughs> I like Nan. She's a nice lady. She well, I mean, what's that like being photographed by the? I mean, did Cindy? Well, Cindy Schumer photographs herself, so probably not. But what was it like yeah. having, you know, being part of these images? Like this, Herbert's is part of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston's collection, and you know, Nan's photographed you, and Robert Maplethorpe. Looking back, does that like blow your mind? It was very much like of the moment, and it was it was nothing like that. Was all like hyped up. The Nan Golden thing came through a friend of mine, and we met through her. You know, Nan was a, a fan. I knew her, but sort of, and it was just like she just wanted to take a picture of me with my pregnant belly, and she did. It was like you know, these are things that when you're like sort of grounded and not just running around like a lunatic things just sort of like flow in a really nice way. And because mm. you're being authentic with people, you like I would run into Robert Maplethorpe, but you know, just coffee shops. And we were just like chit chat. And then it just led into him finally taking that picture. So it was never like, it was, there wasn't a deal that was brokered. It was like, it was like an honest connection that, that you had with these people. Yeah. Well, stay curious, stay engaged, remain open, remain surprised. Exactly. honey. I love it, honey. I love it, honey. <laughs> so we're going to get into our final questions now. This has just been heaven. We ask three questions of every guest that comes on right at the end. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, if you could have any work of art in the world for yourself that you could steal very nicely, what would it be and why? Mm. Oh, my God. Um, I really think a piece by Cindy Sherman. I can't tell you for, for sure which one it would be, but... Um, I just love her work. I love, you know, I, I just love how she transforms herself. So I think, I think something from, from, from Cindy Sherman. It's very performative as well. Their images, aren't they? Exactly. Like yeah. From movies or, they, well, she, or it's very theatrical. Yeah, she creates, yes, absolutely. That makes sense. The other question we ask is. What is your favorite color? Uh, my favorite color is neon orange. Oh, I like that. What? See, orange <laughs> what? is my favorite color. I knew I was bonded with you. I just <laughs> like it. I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's like the sun. It's bright. It's fun. It's upbeat. It's like, you know, it brings like a drab day up up to like another level. Do you wear neon orange as a clothes, as a like a piece of fabric, or do you have it in your house anywhere? It, yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily have neon, but but I have splashes of orange and also hot pink. Mm, they go nicely together. Look, I'm wearing neon orange right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I love it. I showed yeah. up for you, see? Yeah, um, you did. You know, can I quickly ask you something about a musician that you know, Chrissy Hine? Because I love her and the Pretenders are so awesome. And I used to live really near her in North London. And so I live in a town called Margate now, which is like a seaside town. And there's a guy here who runs this kind of amazing, um, like, clothes shop. And he's really close friends with her. I think he managed her or something like that. I was tour manager or something. And he was saying we should get her on tour car because she loves art. She makes paintings. She painted me, my my daughter. Really? Uh-huh. Ah, and she she live in New York now? 
No, she lives in London, baby. Oh, she lives in London. Ah, so, so, because I saw a video of you guys, which I thought looked like it was in New York. It's a really funny yeah, conversation. Was, yeah, it, it was, she was on my radio show. Oh, okay. That's what it but was. I ah. love, I love Chrissy and she is, she's the most real person in the world. And sometimes she's just like, she doesn't give a shit. She just will not, she'll just barrel through something and she's right there. She's right there in your face. I, I, love her in touch all the time i miss her that's one of the people i want to see when i come back to london oh so when she painted you was that did you sit for her yeah no it really that's so cool what know. are the paintings like what's her style like it's very like rough raw you know kind of like i mean i'll try i could try to i'll try to find that and send it to you too it's yes, some, please. somewhere back in my phone but I, i'll find it yeah, I, I'm a big, big fan. I really want to chat to her. If one you want day. to put in a good word, please do. Yeah, I will. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? I think what I said earlier about from Paul Mooney is just like constantly, you know, strip away all the layers of artifice and be as close to your authentic person as you can possibly be, and. Just never lose sight of who you are. How do you how do you do that though? How do you strip away layers? In what in way? In what capacity? Well, I mean, I feel like every time I walk on stage, I'm I'm more who I am than I was the time before. Right. And I don't mm. think it's something you can fully articulate. It's just mm. it's a combination of being a, a having a be a feeling, but also something conscious about the way you approach your work and to just like sink into it and not like fight it and not be afraid of it. I love that. So what's coming up for you, Sandy, you've got an incredible website. It's jam packed with magic of uh, <laughs> Sandyland. It's phenomenal just to delve into and go deep dive and fall into. Um, but what <laughs> is upcoming for you? I'm also writing a scripted show with my friend Judy Gold, who's a, um, a comedian. And this seems to be like moving along. I mean, I hate talking about things because I always, I get worried that, you know, if it, it doesn't happen or I just don't want to, it's not about jinxing it, but it seems to be moving along. So that's mm -hmm. happening. And I hope that, you know, I get more acting work this coming year, obviously, you know, I mean, I want to, I hope Ryan Murphy calls me again. Mm -hmm. We do too. I love <laughs> you on the screen. And, you know, things like Same. Pose, it was so, um, and American Horror Story, it's so important having these stories on the screen. And I'd, I'd never seen a show with so much, um, you know, kind of heartfelt, tender moments from the trans community as well in Pose. I found it so revolutionary that that was on, on BBC TV in the UK, you know, like it's so important. And I think in times where anti-Semitism and like, you know, anti-abortion, you know, all this all this awful sort of LGBTQI far right. rights. Yeah, exactly. Trans um, rights, yeah. It seems to be sort of trying to come back. It's like we have to just have people like Sandy on our screens. <laughs> well, um, thank you. So that's, you know, that's, that's the, those are my goals. And um, just to like keep, you know, putting it out there and putting it out there and staying strong. Yes. And staying love driven, but also love with fury which i think is a good combination because you can't just be a pushover you have to be somebody who like ignites the fire with love but with strength and honesty 
and um you know just goes out and knocks the shit out of you know the commonplace as as i'll quote andre don't be pedestrian <laughs> so good love with fury and don't be a pedestrian amazing uh mantras to love with fury i've never heard that one before i, I know, love that, that i haven't never said it i'll be honest with you so I'm, it's always nice when you say something because you're you're really like boom you're in it well, for everyone yeah. listening, uh, we're going to post images. Sandy's going to send us some images of her mum's art yes. and of yes. the yeah. photographs. And yeah. Yeah, we need the Nan Golden photo. That's amazing. Nan photograph. And also, and everybody, you guys can't say this, but everybody watch American Horror Story. Both of their performances are next level extraordinary. And I was actually just at um, the British Vogue dinner with Edward Enningful, and Edward said he's been watching it and he's obsessed with the show. And um, so is well, Maxwell. Tell, tell, tell Edward he needs to get on my radar and do something with me. Well, we can see him when you come to London. Yeah. Well, I want to get see him before because I want him to do something so that it promotes me coming. <laughs> exactly. Edward needs to get with the program and, and the next elevation of Miss Bernhard. This. Don't it's be a pedestrian. Happen. Don't yes. be pedestrian. Don't be pedestrian. Well, love right. with fury, everyone. We'll be back very Thank soon. Thank you, Sandy. Oh, and also you can, you can see Sandy on Instagram, which is at... Sandra G. Bernhard. So it's very easy to find. Lots of love. We'll be back very soon. Bye. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com